Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the 147 podcast with me, sports MC Phil Seymour, and him, the former Triple Crown winner and snooker world champion, the magician, Sean Murphy. And here we are, it is episode 10, but in a shock turn of events, I am not with the magician Sean Murphy tonight, I am in fact doing the podcast on my own, as I can exclusively reveal, exclusively reveal... That Sean, the magician Sean Murphy, is in fact in Australia, holed up in a hotel, about to enter the jungle alongside Matt Hancock. Only joking. Good evening, Sean. Good evening. You had me going there for a minute. You had me. <laughs> so did you think you were in Australia suddenly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Imagine how good that would be. Oh, Imagine I love it. Going in the jungle. I'd love it. The, the, the big question for me is, would it be your, your good lady wife that across the bridge at the end, or would you invite me across there to the Versace Hotel? Surely I'd get to go with you, wouldn't I? It'd depend whether we were recording the pod or not, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely it would. No, it started, and we love we love the jungle. We know this. We've talked about this before. Um, yeah. I, I, oh, mate, you in there would be fantastic. Wouldn't it be a laugh? Anyway, <laughs> where in the world are you, and how are you doing? I'm there. I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, I'm actually up in Belfast, funnily enough, uh, uh, just a couple of weeks after the Northern Ireland Open. Um, back up here practising with uh, Northern Ireland's number one player, Mark Allen, and uh, two-year two defending uh, champion up here. Come up for a couple of days' practice because both our uh, normal set of practice partners are all over in uh, the UK trying to qualify for the UK Championship. So, Absolutely. Uh, left Mark and I to it, so I'm just up in Belfast for a couple of days. Good what about stuff? I'm, I'm in York. I've been, I've been all over the place the last week or so. It's been a bit, little bit nuts. I was down in uh, at Butlins in Bognor Regis on Saturday doing the darts with Wayne Mardle and uh, some of those guys having a great time down there. It was uh, a really, really good time. And I have some, some sort of half-interesting snooker news that I will be at the UK Championships next week just for a day. Obviously, I can't MC at the UK. That is Rob's domain, um, Rob Walker's domain. But I will be filling in as a reporter for Discovery or Eurosport um, on the day that you play your first match. So I get well, to do your winner's interview after the match, Sean, don't I? Well, I, I, I hope that's the case. Uh, you know, we won't get ahead of ourselves, but um, at least you'll see me for one day. Yeah, I will do. And, and I'll, I'll get, to, <laughs> get to watch a bit, a bit of the play as well. And quite a day it looks as well, actually. I think there's, there's Judd, Judd Trump's on, Jack Lizowski's on, yourself. 
Uh, Callie Hill's still needing that tree. Is it Selby? I'm not sure. Anyway. All the really good players. Looks a great day's play. There is the qualifiers going on at the moment in Sheffield. Uh, tickets are available for that. You can get those from wst.tv forward slash tickets. You can go and watch the qualifiers in Sheffield. Slightly different format this year for the UKs, but that gets underway next week. However, let's talk about what has just happened because yesterday, Ronnie O'Sullivan did a hell of a job in beating Judd Trump in the final of the Champion of Champions and what a performance from the Rocket. Yeah, brilliant. That's his fourth Champion of Champions, uh, making him the undisputed Champion of Champions, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, it's uh, it, you know, it gets rolled out, doesn't it? People are saying it all the time. There must be some truth in it. These events, events like that, those limited field events, just the one table, centre focus, um, those events, they, they really do line up for Ronnie. You know, they, they really do suit him. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he proven yet again that, you know, when he's on form, you know, he is the man to beat. There's absolutely no question about it. World champion, world number one, and now for the fourth time, um, the undisputed champion of champions. Um uh, and played really nice snooky, you know, fended off that great one four seven break from Judd Trump, uh, managed to fend him off. Uh, Judd didn't play great in the final and certainly in the first half of it, and he left himself far too much to do, although he did recover to 7-6. Uh, but in the end, you know, O'Sullivan ran out a, a fairly comfortable winner in the end, but that's an event he's almost made his own, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. I've got to say, Judd throughout the event looked good, though. Judd, Judd looks like he is back. He's he's back to something like he was maybe a year, 18 months ago. Uh, Judd is starting to look pretty good. Uh, it's frightening, though. Ronnie's 47 next month, same as same as my good self. And he, there's, there's no sign of him slowing up, is there? He's, he's still relentless in the, the way that he can pop balls and dominate a table. Yeah, there's a few factors now in play there. You know, he's always been the best scorer. You know, he's, he's way ahead on the centuries, of course, but wins more frames in one visit than anyone else, seemingly. Um, there's the intimidation factor now that, you know, a lot of players suffer with when they go out to play him. Obviously, the crowd tend to be a little bit more raucous when they, when it's an O'Sullivan match. It's always a full house. Um, uh, uh, but he's now got, of course, it's been said for a few years now, but he is now fully established as that complete all-round master of the game. So, you know, it doesn't matter if it goes scrappy. It doesn't matter if it goes horrible. The balls are on the cushions and things. He's he's happy to scrap it out and wait, which in his early part of his career, he perhaps wasn't so willing to stand there all day. Worked famously with Reardon, the, the grandmaster from the 60s and 70s, and that changed his entire career trajectory, I believe. I think without Ray's input, Ronnie might not have gone on and, and won everything that he has. I think Ray bringing that ability to want to play a B, C, D game. It, it was never that Ronnie couldn't do it. I think it was just Ray made it into, I think he, he educated Ronnie and just how important that part of the game was. Because you can't always swamp your opponents, especially now. You see, you know, O'Sullivan takes a 6-1 lead against Trump. Trump gets out of his seat and makes a maximum break. You know, that, that just didn't happen 20 years ago. Um and so he's become the complete player. He has. Well, you brought up the maximum. Let's let's just talk about this because this has caused quite a stir all over well, all over the media, but on social media for sure. Judd Trump was, um, I think he was 6-1 down at the time, got up, did a maximum, one four seven break, superb, brilliant. I mean, a maximum's always special, but to do it in those conditions in a final, when you're under the pump like he was, you know, that, that shows some real... Real skill, real guts, real determination. But it was what happened after he potted the black that's caused some um, 
disdain amongst people. Now, usually, a player gets a 147. If there's other tables in play, the, the tables stop and everyone watches because it's exciting. Um, and they pop the black. Their opponent shakes their hand. The referee shakes their hand. You know, it, it's sort of a done thing. That didn't happen. Neither, I think Marcel Eckhart was a referee and, and Ronnie stayed sat glued to his chair. He wasn't going to get up to shake his hand. Neither of them shook his hand, which there's been a lot of talk on social media about it. A lot of people not happy saying different things. What's your take on it, Sean? Yeah, I, I, funny enough, it, you know, I didn't watch every frame of, of the match, um, but I did happen to see that live. And um, I thought it was it was very strange. I've never seen anything like that before, ever. Uh, every 147 I've been a part of, be it the, 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 the maker or, or the player in the chair, um, you, you're always congratulated or congratulate your opponent. Um, the officials normally get in the same. Just today, Mark Allen and I were practising in his club there in Antrim and Mark made a 147 break and everyone who was watching in the club congratulated him. You know, he and I shook hands and, you know, I congratulated him. And it's just in practice, like, you know, it's a special thing. It doesn't happen every day. Um, very peculiar, that. Um, very, very peculiar. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't like to try and predict or, or prescribe what was going on inside the head of Ronnie at the time. I, you know, you just wouldn't want to spend any time in there. Um, but I, I, I no idea why he didn't, um, seemingly why he didn't congratulate Judd. Now, this could be unfair, and, and I would like to say there's often things that go on in a snooker arena that, that the cameras don't pick up on. He may well have congratulated him off camera, and this may all be a you know a moot point. Um, but from what was seen, I thought I thought it was strange. You know, it wasn't as if I saw a lot of comments about the fact that it was a you know a big match, big final. Don't want to give your opponent an edge. I get all that. It was six two. Um, if you can't give your opponent a bit of appreciation at six two ahead, when can you give it? Like. Thought it was strange. Put yourself in Judge's shoes then. You're you're that player. You you've made one four sevens, okay? Put yourself in his shoes. You make that one four seven and neither the referee or the other player shakes your hand. How are you feeling right then? Yeah, I, I would I would uh, me personally I would felt I would find it hard to leave it. You know, I would have to ask one of them at some stage, probably at, at the end of the session, uh what happened there? You know, what 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 what, what was that about? Uh, I, I would find that hard to leave. Yeah, um, because so entrenched is that type of thing in the etiquettes of our sport. Um, it's not within the rules. It, it's it, it, no one's broken any rules. Uh, not absolutely not. But it's kind of a custom, uh, and it's these these small little etiquettes are what we trade off in snooker. It's meant to be a gentleman's sport. Um, you know, uh, without those little things, we're just any other cue sport. Yeah, and. Um, I, I, I thought it was a real strange one. Left a bad taste, I thought. Yeah, it did. We'll see see if anything comes out in the media about it in, in post-match. I've not seen anything said about it, to be honest. Judd himself made waves um, earlier on in the week. He, he made comments about needing to attract younger people to the sport. He pointed out that the crowds were quite poor in the, the early stages of the Champion of Champions. Um, Michael Waring on Facebook has messaged us to ask about Ken Doherty mentioned coffee mornings, players' coffee mornings, um, the get-togethers, asking whether players get invited, how do they contribute to that, how does it all work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm no longer involved in the inner workings of WPBSA or WPBSA players, um, uh, which replaced the Players' Commission, uh, which I chaired for a number of seasons. But from, from my knowledge, um, 
every single player with a tour card gets invited to these little coffee mornings we have. Obviously, the, the COVID pandemic changed everything. We we had a few little coffee meetups on Zoom um, and a number of people attended and they turned into like, you know, unofficial players meetings, really. Um, it was great. You know, WPBSA were wanting to keep tabs on the players and make sure everyone was okay and we you know make sure everyone was good from a mental health point of view and stuff like that and they've kind of developed into rather than us all meeting in a play a venue somewhere that doesn't work for people's schedules um we take a morning and, and we'll all meet up and there's an agenda and there's 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 talking points there's debating topics there's representatives from wst wpbsa wpbsa players and then, of course, any players that actually want to attend. And, and I have to say, this is something that's um, been, a, been a problem with snooker ever since I've been involved in it at a professional level. The apathy on tour, the unwillingness for most of their players to get off their arse and get involved in how this game is run and affect positive change is staggering, Phil. You could not believe how apathetic most of the players are. The last coffee morning we had, I think, actually got cancelled because out of the uh, 100 or so invites that were sent out, a handful bothered to RSVP and only two of them could make time to attend the meeting. Wow. Judd Trump has not attended any of those meetings, um, he may well have ha- he may well have had his own private meetings. He may well have met WST on his own terms. Perhaps doesn't want to, you know, talk in front of the rest of the members. Perhaps doesn't feel comfortable doing that. I'm not sure. And he's free to do absolutely whatever he wants. What I would say is, you know, Judd's been very vocal in the last few seasons, as he's entitled to. You know, a player at the very very leading edge of the sport. But I'd, I guess I'd like to see a little bit more action then from, from, from somebody who's so seemingly keen on change. Might be time to get his hands dirty a little bit. Why don't put yourself forward to join the players' board? Join the WPBSA board. I'm sure he'd get a lot of support amongst the membership. The AGM's coming up at the end of the year. Put yourself forward, Judd. You know, it'd be great. If, if he doesn't think there's enough players or enough people of you know, a young enough age or whatever whatever demographic he thinks isn't represented to bring on more people interested in snooker. If he feels he represents that, put yourself forward. I know he'd be supported. Um, and I know WPBSA are crying out for help from the tour. Yeah, do you know, I've got to say from my perspective, I think World Snooker Tour, they're, they're trying, they're making efforts, okay? So the in Northern Ireland last month, we had the, the Q zone we normally have where you have a star table A, you've got WPBSA coaches, they also on a different level had a fan zone where they've got the there's like a long blue ball potting challenge. It's like a a shuffleboard table that you you strike a cue ball and try and get it further down in the scoring zone. They are trying more things. Um, what can we do though? What what can they do? I know the WPBSA and the the EPSB they're, they're doing a lot of work at the moment, growing the amateur game. Okay, putting more profile on that. They're encouraging more snooker clubs to have junior sections. Um, I know a lot of players or former players are, are going in giving coaching, that kind of thing. But what what can we do? What can snooker do to attract a younger audience and a new wave of youngsters wanting to take up the game, Sean? Any, anything you can think of? 
Uh, well, I, I've been fairly critical over the years of, of what there is to do at a snooker event other than watch the snooker. Uh, and it is positive to see some changes taking place. I've, off, I've been calling for many, many years for some practice tables for the professionals to be placed in the public areas. I, I asked for that six or seven years ago, um, specifically at the Barbican in York, where until the tournament structure has recently changed so that the top 16 is seeded through to the 32, and there is only two match tables there, all our practice tables in previous years were in a different build. They weren't even on site. They were 400 yards away in a hotel. So I, I said, well, why can't we put practice tables in the public foyers, rope them off? And it'd be like, you know, the driving range at a golf tournament. Yep. I know lots of people that go to golf events to watch the pros practice. They don't actually go to watch the golf. Yeah, absolutely. I, I made a suggestion some time ago about having like meet and greet. I did the, the World of Sport Wrestling tour with the ITV Wrestling when I was the ring announcer for that. And at, at each show that we did around the country, they had like a meet and greet for the fans and the, the fans paid extra money. Okay, it was extra money. But they got to meet um, the stars, they got to meet the wrestlers, they got selfies with them, they got autographs, that kind of thing. I suggested we could have this at the snooker. You know, how much downtime do players have whilst at a tournament, while they're actually in that town, that city, that venue, they're there and they've got downtime. They're not actually doing anything. You can't practice all the time. So I, I suggested having like a meet and greet with the players. So from, I don't know, 10 till 11 on, on Thursday, Kyron Wilson will be there for a meet and greet and people can come along and bring the kids. The kids can meet Kyron Wilson, who they then watch in the arena or on the TV next weekend or whatever, get a selfie with them, get an autograph. And I know snooker players are pretty approachable anyway, but this would just add something else to that. Um, you know, and I, I, I suggested that and, and I was told uh, the players wouldn't be up for that. The players wouldn't do it. And I thought, well, surely if we're trying to drive this on, I made the suggestion the other week when we are talking about Hong Kong and the arena, about bringing back Premier League, but in like a shootout format, one-frame matches, do it in arenas, or do it in big venues and build up to arenas, that kind of thing. But Judd doesn't even enter the shootout. There's a lot of players don't enter the shootout, even though it's not a ranking event, they don't enter it because it's a shootout. And you think, well, the shootout for me is a massive opportunity because that is something that can, can take it to a, a broader audience because it is quite punchy. You know, kids nowadays, they want the instant gratification. They want, you know, see that for a minute, see that for a minute, see that for a minute. The shootout gives them that, okay? A best of 19 does not give them that. Best of 19 is like test match cricket, okay? It's fantastic. We love it. It's brilliant. You know, it is the purest of the pure. But that's not what a lot of youngsters want now. They want that fast-paced, things happening all the time, noise in the crowd, action on the table. The shootout brings that. A, a rejuvenated Premier League would bring that. Okay, but if players don't enter those events, then it's quite difficult to then talk about not attracting youngsters to the sport when you don't enter those events that could attract youngsters to the sport. They've got more chance of, surely. Yeah, no, you make a very good point. And, uh, you know, I remember Barry Hearn making exactly the same point you've just made, you know, about a lot of players who are critical of the way the tour's set up and some events. They come up with ideas that are very similar to the shootout in terms of uh, the pace, the, the speed of play, the aggressive style of play, the music, the audience, the dress code, and then they don't enter it. Um, so, you know, it's very, very hard to shoot from the sidelines, criticise from the sidelines. Some of these players need to get in and get their hands dirty, Phil, and, and, and that's, the, that's the top and bottom of it. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot, and I'm not singling any particular player out. I wouldn't do that. But there are a lot of them. 
um, and, and, and there's there's constant debates on Facebook pages, players' personal Facebook pages, and this, that, and the other. Um, there's constant little WhatsApp groups going around and all this. Uh, but if you ask any of them to actually put it on a piece of formal paper and present their theories and, 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 and reasons and reasonings and, and ideas to the board, they go quiet. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure where that level of apathy or perhaps nervousness comes from. I, I'm really not sure. What, what I would say is that I believe nobody knows the game of snooker and actually the, the game itself better than the snooker players. And, and you know, the players do often come up with some fabulous ideas about the game, about the tour structure. And you see in a lot of those changes now percolate through to the tour, like the tiered system making a return in terms of the last 32 for the UK champs. That's now very similar to the Worlds. The Worlds has gone back to 19s in the qualifying rounds, stuff like that. that. They're things that started in things like the coffee morning. So going full circle, back to your original question, these coffee mornings are very, very effective. There's been quite a lot of things that are now being that are now happening on the tour that started out as a, a very sort of chilled out suggestion uh, over a coffee one morning on Zoom that has now taken that has now taken effect. As I say, I, I'd love to see more of these very opinionated and often correct players make an appearance in one of these players' meetings and and make their points constructively. Absolutely, it's the only way they're going to make a difference. So. Champion of Champions at the weekend. Match from Multisport, once again, great job. Set looked brilliant. You've got the live boards, a live set around the table. Nice, comfy-looking chairs. Decent crowds as well. Um, they were steady away during the week, and then obviously they picked up for the weekend, as they always do for these events. Um, few surprises. Fang Zheng Yi won the European Masters. He's hardly won a game since then, and all of a sudden he's on fire in the Champion of Champions. Um, big Ryan Day playing well again as well. There's, you know, it was a, a really, really good tournament. Ronnie looked imperious, especially in that final. Judd looks like he is getting back to to where he was a couple of years ago, um, which again all bodes well. So we've got the qualifiers for the UK this week, and then next week it is the UK Championships here in the greatest city in the world, <laughs> the city of York. And you're coming over, Sean. I'm excited. I was actually listening to uh, our friends over and talking snooker this morning on the way up here. Um, another great episode from those guys. And um, they made the point, and I'll make it on, on here, that um, all of this points to a, a very exciting next few weeks for snooker fans uh, and players. You know, uh, I, I'm really excited about going to York this year. I think uh, that event... Um, I've made no secret that I don't agree with the, with some of the changes. I I I, I don't agree for, that the top sixteen players in the world should be uh, protected in in this manner and start three or four rounds ahead of everyone else. Uh, however, um, that's that's going to make my job of trying to win the UK Championship easier. Uh, and uh, you know, so from that point of view, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited that there's only going to be the two tables. You know, good crowds straight away. Um, it's going to feel a little bit more prestigious for those players that are there. York is a great city, which I love visiting. Uh, and, um, of course, I'm there, you know, going to be there with my BBC hat on as well. So I'm really looking forward to, to, to getting over there. And, and hopefully, you know, I'll be busy playing. But um, I'm really looking forward to the event. And I think with everyone, you know, it feels like everyone's coming to the boil just at the right time could very well be one of the best UK championships we've seen for many a year. Do you know, I was just going to say exactly the same thing. There's so many players on good form right now that 
it really could. That's not just us bigging snooker up as we do big snooker up. It could very well be the highest quality UK championship we have ever seen. So that will be live on the BBC. It's also live on Eurosport and Discovery Plus as well. No excuses. It's on everywhere. So you can you can watch the UK championships from York. Anyway, we are risking turning into a serious snooker podcast. So we must move on, Sean, because that would do no good. After this, it will be time for Sean's rant. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the 147 Podcast with Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to interact with us across all forms of social media at 147pod. That's the words, at 147pod. Now, your last rant, Sean, was about doctor's receptionists. I've not heard a dissenting word. No one has disagreed with you. We didn't even have any angry doctor's receptionists. We had no angry Margarets on whatsoever having a go at you. So I think you were right. All I saw was support. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not running for prime minister. Um, but I, you know, if I was, I feel like my manifesto is strong. The scary thing is, with the current crop of politicians, I think your chances are strong as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it is time for your rant, Mr. Murphy. You will have one minute and 47 seconds from the time I say rant to the time the klaxon sounds. Sean, are you ready? I am ready. The magician Sean Murphy, three, two, one, rant. Right. My rant this time is following on from my previous rants in terms of I'm picking the low-hanging fruit. These are things that annoy everybody. Doctors, receptionists, bad drivers. I think Wasps was one of the early ones as well, something like that. I can't remember. This rant is all about mobile phone reception or the lack thereof. Now, apparently, back in the in the in the fifties or sixties, we all went to the moon, where we all remember the famous the famous footage of the guys walking on the moon. And back in a little building somewhere in America, there were people in there talking to them whilst they were on the moon. Why can't I ring my mother when I'm driving up the M1? It's absolutely pathetic. You can be walking through the middle of Manchester and have no phone reception whatsoever. There are stretches of the M6 in England where it's as if the mobile phone just hasn't reached them. It's completely and utterly ridiculous. It's 2022 for crying out loud. Why can't we have full mobile phone reception everywhere we go? Now, years ago before the pandemic, we used to take bullet trains through China, from city to city on tours, doing 350 kilometres an hour. Guess what? Full, strong mobile signal for the entire journey. But no, in the UK and Ireland, you can't have any. And just whilst I mention Ireland, 
as a as a person from the UK with an English number living in Ireland, it's an absolute nightmare. Do you know the things I? Do you know the things in everyday life, Phil, that I can't do because I have a UK number living in the Republic of Ireland? It's a joke. You did hear the klaxon, right? <laughs> wow. All things a joke. Do you, do you know, I've got to say, actually, the last time the last time we spoke on the phone, I was in my car, and I think what we called back what seven, eight times because it just kept cutting out. It's just not worth it in the end. It's just not worth it. It is pretty poor. Mobile phone reception. How bad is it then? How how bad do you find? I've got to say, I travel a lot, and it is patchy. Where it's good, it's good. Where it's bad, it's non-existent. So, is Sean right? Is mobile phone reception rubbish? Should it be better? Is it better in other countries? Look, we've got we've got listeners all over the world on this podcast now. So, is of it... course, it's better in other countries. It can't be any worse, can it? I've, do you know what? I <laughs> I was in Denmark last month, and the mobile phone reception I had there was perfect. It was, it was great, yes. I've got to say, I think you could well be right. What do you think? At 147pod across all social media. That's at and the words 147pod all across social media. Let us know what you think. Right. Oh, he's waving his I, pen at me. That's dangerous. I must that's just dangerous. tell you this, though. I must just tell you this, because this is ridiculous. Uh, you know, it, it, obviously a lot of people know, anyone who's seen me in the last few months know, I, I've lost I, I've lost a lot of weight since the, the end of last season. Uh, I've lost over four stone now. So as, as, as you can imagine, that I've had to have a lot of my uh, gear tailored and altered rather than just chuck it. You know, I've, I've taken a lot of things to an alterations place in Dublin that I use. Great, great place. Um, I'll, give them a, I'll give them a shout out. It's not an ad. Uh, they, they've given me nothing for free. Um, but they've called the Zip Yard and they're in Dublin. They're on St. Anne Street. And they're fabulous. You know, great crew of people in there. Um, and I've taken loads of stuff in there to them. And at the end, you, you know, you leave your details with them. So, that, that, you know, she says, oh, well, we'll text you. Uh, come back and collect it next week, but we'll text you when it's ready, if it's ready early. Great. What's your number? So I give them my number. They went, oh, uh, you're sorry, we won't be able to send you a text because you've got an English phone number. Right. What? And? said, like, why? Oh, the computer just won't do it. It only deals with Irish numbers. What? What? That's bizarre. Bizarre. But mobile phones Deliveroo, the... Deliveroo, Uber, Free Now, uh, all of these things. Dominoes, which you know the Sean Murphy of six months ago did like a Dominoes. <laughs> uh, can't get the text updates. Can't get the. Can't get. They won't ring me. They get to the gates. They won't ring me. I have to send the butler three miles down oh, the gates. That it's poor a joke. butler. Does he? Does he still do it on his hands and knees as well, or do you? Do you let him walk? Well, I've been trying to encourage him to moonwalk up the driveway. Uh, well, it's all good practice. It's more likely he'll do that than me doing it into a final, that's for certain. <laughs> it's when you send him down into the arena to do your moonwalk before you just stride past the table. That's the one that comes. Anyway, there you go. So, mobile phone reception at 147pod across social media. Right, on to listeners' questions. We begin with two on books, okay? We will begin with Hector Nuns on Twitter. Now, Hector, the illustrious sports journalist and snooker journalist um the man who hits a keyboard harder than i think mike tyson used to hit his opponents if you've never seen hector type a match report goodness me well he knocks his keyboard clean out he hits that keyboard when he types a match report it stays typed okay that's all i'm saying right hector wants to know more keyboards than elton john that fella oh seriously he absolutely does what's the last autobiography you read yeah, do you know what? 
it's it's taken me it's taken me so long to think about this. You, you know, because I the, I couldn't tell you the last time I read an actual physical book, like picked a book up and read it. Wow, could you? Yeah, I can. <laughs> Of course, you're 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 a sort of analog. Right? You're 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 an analog man living in a digital world. You're saying I'm old, Sean. Is that the point you're making here? You're saying that I'm old, right? Well, old man. I, um, I like books, and I I particularly like biographies and autobiographies. I don't read fiction. I know you're a big J.K. Rowling fan. I know you've been causing stirs on Twitter with your conversations with J.K. Rowling, um, and everything that stirs up. But I love an autobiography or biography. I'm, I don't read fiction. Never have done. Um, so mine was Bob Mortimer. From of Reeves and Mortimer fame and away, and do you know I can highly recommend that book if um, if anyone you know fancies a a good autobiography and away by Bob Mortimer is absolutely fantastic. It really is absolutely brilliant book. Um, he wrote it just after his his heart bypass operation, and there's a lot in there. There is actually a link to snooker as well because he's friends with Damien Hurst who you often see at snooker tournaments because he's good friends with Ronnie O'Sullivan as well. So, um, yeah, and away, uh, written by Bob Morton. What about you then, Sean? Did you manage to rack well, your brains? Well, just you mentioned the J.K. Rowling thing. I just wanted anyone who didn't know, I just had some, <laughs> you know, just some clarity to that. Last week I tweeted and I, I included J.K. Rowling in the tweet because as a, as a family we'd sat down and we'd introduced our children to the world, the magical world of Harry Potter. Um, which, as, as a non-fiction reader, you won't have read. No, I haven't. No, children's uh, books as well, so not interested. Um, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, all I did was tag J.K. Rowling in the tweet, right? J.K. Rowling didn't retweet it. She didn't interact with it in any way. She didn't reply. Nothing. All I did was tag her in it. I've just dug up the tweet now. That tweet itself received 65 thousand six and a half thousand likes uh and two hundred and eighty four thousand interactions <laughs> all i did was tag her name in it yeah i'm gonna tag um... her name i'm gonna tag jk rowling in every tweet from now on she's become she's become a slightly polarizing slightly controversial character on social media which i don't think we should really get into on here to be honest but um so that obviously that was a book that you read, but what was the last autobiography? I sense you're trying to wrestle me back to the point. Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> um, do you know it, it was it was a while ago. It was called Life Swings by Nick Faldo, now Sir Nick Faldo, and you know, you know, everyone a big golfer, big golf fan, and Nick. Faldo, you know, one of the best golfers, you know, of all time. I don't think there's any question about that. But I was interested in him because, you know, I remember growing up and looking for inspiration from other other people who I held in high regard from other sports, particularly single-player sports. Uh, and Nick Faldo was somebody I looked up to. But, you know, if you were a casual observer, I always felt the media and the press had him out as a bit of a bit of a numpty like you know a bit a bit of a bit of a wrong you know it was it was as if he was a bit aloof and this that and the other and it's not until you read his autobiography and it's often the way with people in the spotlight it's not until you read their story in their words you get a complete completely different sense of who they are what their morals and principles are and actually 
reading his book changed my entire um, you know belief system around what he was like as a person. I, I, I was inspired by his work ethic, um, inspired by the hour upon hour upon hour he used to hit balls in search of that perfect swing. And it inspired me and encouraged me in my in my career, you know, different moments. I've read it more than once. And, do you know, I'd encourage anyone, anyone with any dreams and aspirations of achieving anything on their own, I'd read Nick Faldo's book. It was fabulous. Well, I'm, I'm going to shout out just two other books if I can, two sports books. The last sporting autobiography I read was uh, Longy by Sean Long, the um, former Great Britain and St. Helens uh, rugby league player. Um complete opposite to what you've just said about Nick Faldo. If you read Sean Long's book, it reinforces everything you ever thought or knew about Sean Long. Yes, he has <laughs> lived his life, okay? Um, read it. He's lived a life as that man. And um, yeah, there's... there's Put it this way, there's not a lot of water drunk in that book. I'll go that far. The other one, and this is on a side, a completely definitely more serious point, um, is a Steve Prescott book, One in a Million. Steve Prescott, former... Rugby league player again. Um, Steve Prescott got cancer. He, he eventually died. Um, but the book is amazing. Before he died, when he had cancer, he was told he had so long to live. He took on so many different challenges, crazy challenges to raise money for the Christie Hospital in Manchester. Um, and he's an incredible, inspiring man. He researched new new techniques of surgery to try and free his body of cancer. And when he died he had rid his body of cancer or the surgeons had rid his body of cancer. He died from his, his body rejecting certain transplants that happened. And the book is finished off by his, his wife at the end, Lindsay. And it's, it's an amazing book. One in a million by Steve Prescott. If, if you read one sporting book, if you ever want picking up, that's an amazing book to read. Steve Prescott, an incredible character. Um, really, really inspiring. Just, just an amazing man. So, there you go, Hector. I hope that's answered your question fully. Now, the other one we had on books was Addy G from Germany on Twitter. On a previous podcast, Sean, podcast, podcast even, Sean mentioned <laughs> owning every snooker book ever written. Is he serious? I'm an avid collector of snooker books and tried to get a definitive list of all snooker books ever written, but haven't quite managed it. Do you have any rare ones or any recommendations? Well, I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm fairly confident that uh, I've got at least one of pretty much every snooker book that's ever been published, going way back to, you know, the very, very early days and the Joe Davis Bible that we often hear of, wh of which there were a few editions and updated versions and so on. Uh, Joe did bring out a number of books. Um, Steve Davis made those famous because they were what he always referred to. He and his father learned the game from and. Um, that was kind of where my father and I started. If truth be told, we would stand there with the Joe Davis book. Um, it was in a, it was like a red bound book, and we would stand there and we would run the drills that Joe had ran from the twenties and thirties. Um, uh, and uh, as a as a small sideline, it, it's so interesting. Now I'm now involved very heavily with the WPBSA coaching scheme, uh, and it's so interesting now to get into there and you know, get into their blueprints and understand why, what we teach our coaches and why we teach them. And, and, and you know, worryingly, uh, a lot of it's because Joe Davis wrote it in 1932. Uh, and there's, there's not been much 
uh, tinkering with it over the years and, and, and it's been quite exciting to get in and go yeah but why do we do that why are we teaching it that way and why, why do we? so it's been very interesting to do that and there's some exciting stuff coming from the WPBSA coaches thing you know in the next few months and years but um, yeah this, the, the, the books are really good um, I've, not, I've nothing specific to recommend I just think, you know, anything written that I used to have, there was some snooker encyclopedias. I used to reread Steve Davis's autobiography, the first one, uh, almost on a monthly basis as a young boy. Um, but really, you know, you can't go wrong. I always remember that the, my favourite growing up, and I think it was from 1987 or 88, was the Matchroom Snooker Annual. <laughs> I remember those. Yeah, I remember those. I loved that. Classic. Anyway, so there you go. That's your snooker books. Uh, Sam Copley from Instagram. If you were to dye your hair, Phil, <laughs> what colour would you dye it? Okay. Um, I wouldn't. Okay. I'd first, oh, Firstly. Play the game. Firstly, Phil. I am I'm currently going grey disgracefully. Okay. And I'm just embracing that. I'm, I'm going very grey and it's only going to get worse. I once dyed my hair. I was 18 years old and I decided I wanted blonde hair because I wanted blonde hair. So I dyed it myself as you do obviously you don't go to professional for these things that completely alter the way you look you just do it yourself um and my hair didn't go blonde my hair went not even ginger it went bright orange and i i mean if you you those orange high vis jackets that that road workers wear it went that color it literally went bright orange and it cost me a lot of money to get a proper hairdresser to try and pull it back something like and it ended up like straw. It was horrific. So, no, having done that, no, I would never, ever dye my hair. Have you dyed yours, would you? Very similarly to yourself. I had the 18, 19-year-old midlife crisis. Um, I did the M&M hairstyle as well. Oh, wow. Um, I went into the barbers for a haircut, and I came back with the full blonde M&M. Um, and I just at the time joined what was called the Young Player of Distinction course, which was an old world snooker thing. We turned up to our first uh, official uh, media day, and there was me with bright blonde hair. It was a very, very bad mistake, one that I would never like to repeat. I had a sponsor at the time who owned a, a, a small garage in in the village of Earthlinborough where I lived, and they owned the garage next door, and they sponsored us. They gave us a car you know, to do all the miles into wow. the snooker. A lovely family. The Reddings and the father, Jeff Redding, and his two sons, Andy uh, and Paul, ran the, ran the dealership. And their, their other brother, Neil, you know, we all became very good friends over the years. Um, but I would have been, like, as I say, a, you know, a young boy when we met them. They sponsored us, sponsored me, I should say. Uh, and um, I walked into the dealership with my bright blonde hair and Jeff was like the you know the arc he was like godfather you know he was sat there like don corleone you know in his office and i walked in and i remember he went what the bloody hell have you done <laughs> fantastic it could have been worse it could have gone bright orange you should have oh. said that to him at the time i could just see you like having a haircut brilliant I, I won't be dying my hair anytime soon i did the blonde thing didn't work. I can't believe two weeks ago you called Selby out on having bad haircuts and you've just admitted to getting an M&M. That is absolutely shocking, Murphy. Shocking. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Absolutely. Okay, Raj Diol on Instagram. Uh, question for Sean. Which pro player was nicest to you when you were working your way through the ranks? 
Yeah, very tough. Very tough to answer this actually in 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 one player, uh, and I know I have a tendency to waffle, so I shall I shall try and keep this short. But there were three players who it would be wrong of me not to name these three guys, and they all played to various levels. And um, the first that springs to mind was Nigel Bond, um, who throughout my you know very early young career, teens and, and amateur days, you know, um, was one of the few professional players who would accept me for a, for a day's practice you know to come to play them for the day maybe twice a week once 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 a week twice a week uh, and, and then would make the you know would make the the, the the return journey so I wasn't always traveling to him very very much appreciated and, and he helped me a lot there were other players who did the same Mick Price in Nuneaton was the same uh, eventually Peter Ebden uh, managed to drag him out of what was called his potting shed at the bottom of his brother-in-law's garden. <laughs> uh, we got him into the snooker club as well. And now the current WPBSA chairman, Jason Ferguson, was also very generous with his time. Um, the former club owner, who uh, uh, owned the club where I grew up playing, uh, and this was actually mentioned on today's uh, Snooker Scene podcast, funnily enough, talking about the other podcasts um, this guy was mentioned on there as someone who you know, was very influential in snooker. Um, he actually played at the Crucible. Uh, he played in the Masters and was the 1984 World Billiards champion, Mark Wildman, who, who's now very much into his late 80s uh, and lives out there in Spain, uh, but was extremely influential in my early career. Uh, gave up his time absolutely freely uh, and couldn't have helped me more you know, really educated me in the finer arts of cue ball control, positional play, a lot of billiards information, a lot of old school knowledge, which has kind of been lost now. You see the younger generations coming through. They haven't got that, that, that knowledge. They haven't got it. They will get it. But I was very lucky. I, ha I had him, you know, instilling it in me from 11 years of age. And I was so, so lucky. And he was such a lovely man. The third member of the uh, trilogy was the club professional at that club, it was called Rawns Q Sports. And the club pro there was called Mukesh Palmer, um, who I met when I was eight years of age. And I'm, I'm thrilled to say it now, for 32 years later, he's still one of my dearest friends, um, owns a, a fabulous club in Leicester, the Winchester Snooker Club, uh, with his wife, Svetlana, and an absolute gem of a human being. And in, in his day, a fabulous player too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cracking guys, Mukesh. Anyway, then moving on. So there you go. That hopefully that answers your question, Raj. Sean, Chapeth uh, Unkatke on Instagram. What are your thoughts on sponsor patches on waistcoats? I think they look tatty. And if one fell off, would that be classed as a foul? Well, if one fell off and hit a ball, would it be classed as a foul? Uh, yes, I guess it would. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, the, the answer is yes, it would. Um, but it's, I mean, it's quite unfair, that isn't it, when you think about it, because it's a it's something that the the, the tour are insisting you you put on. Um, if well, if we're talking about the, we always, for some clarity on this, we always have to wear a patch that represents the tournament sponsor, whether we want to or not. Um, and as players, you know, we don't receive any personal remuneration for that. Um, and that's just become carte blanche across the across the tour for maybe the last I don't know, fifteen, sixteen years, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's just become the norm. So you will always see players wearing the tournament sponsors' logos on their chest. Uh, and of course, then you'll see obviously with players' own personal sponsors, you're allowed one on each lapel, 
and one on each sleeve. Uh, and if they if they fall off, um, they it, it is absolutely a foul, which I think is a little bit unfair, to be honest. Yeah, I think it probably is actually, but it it's what it is. And I get that. Listen, that there's a need for sponsors in snooker. Okay, there is. Um, you know, players have their own sponsors, and as, as Sean quite rightly says, each tournament has a tournament sponsor. That sponsor's logo patch gets gets put on. We have, um, I think it's generally Pat, isn't it? So <laughs> the patches on in the back in the in the office in the back there and does a great job doing so so i would any patch pat has put on will not fall off i can almost guarantee you that but you do often see some of them and there's some some players have waistcoats that their own sponsor patches have been sort of on for a long time i know pat often does running repairs for them and tidies them up and and sharpens them up a little bit so it does you know it does happen um I, I, I understand what, what he's really. saying though with, with the with the scruffiness because I, I think the patches themselves, the actual ones that are sewn on and sometimes are just stuck on with double sided tape, I think they look terrible. They can do, yeah. Yeah, they absolutely can do. Awful. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think I think it should be on on the player's responsibility. If a player has a long term relationship with a sponsor and it's somebody who they know they're going to endorse for a season, let's say. I, I think that player should be, you know, encouraged strongly to either get an iron-on logo or have it embroidered on their clothing. Yeah, absolutely. It just looks, it just looks so much tidier. And costs nowadays. Um, it's not massive to get it embroidered, is it, really? So. No, but the, the problem is, is that once you have it embroidered or ironed onto your clothes, that's that garment finished. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the problem. You know, we're, we're, a lot of us are wearing specifically tailored gear, and that, that doesn't come cheap. And of course, you know everyone's struggling. So um, I, I, I do understand why it's the way it is. It doesn't look great. I agree, but yep. there are there are good financial reasons why it is the way it is. Absolutely. Okay, then moving on. Niall Greenfield from the morning Monday Morning Football Chat podcast on Facebook. I've heard commentators saying how players have to get used to the different tables on the tour. He says, "What are the differences, and what are the differences between the outside tables and the TV tables now?" This is pretty personal because I'm, I think the Champion of Champions is played on Rasson tables. I know it was. I think it probably still is, which is different to the star tables that, that you use on the rest of the tour, pretty much. Um, I think Rasson are used in cha- um, Championship League as well. It's a, the match and multi-sport table. Um, and the rest of the tour is star tables. So what are the differences, Sean? Um, I mean, apart from the aesthetics... Uh uh, there isn't a great deal of difference. Um, obviously, they've all got six pockets. They've all got eight legs. They're all green, uh, and they're all the same size. Um, we, we, we as players uh, would would play. You know, would say that a Rasson table plays slightly more generously than a star table. The pockets appear to play and perform slightly bigger. Although I think we've been assured. I've certainly seen them be measured, and they are the same size. Yeah. The pockets on a star table. You know, but but for some reason. Uh, shots, balls seem to go into the pockets that little bit easier on a, a Rasson table, for which I have no explanation. Um, after that, it's just aesthetics. Uh, when you're looking into the pocket as a player, you obviously get used to that, that the leather and the stitching around a certain style of pocket. That's different between a Rasson and a star. So the physical target that we're looking at uh, is slightly different. And I think there's a belief that the balls come off the cushions at a slightly different angle. Uh, from a Rasson to a star. Now that we're talking fractions, but in an accuracy sport like snooker, fractions can make all the difference. The differences between TV tables and what we call outside tables, uh, you know, again, for clarity, um, a lot of venues we play in 
you know, have, have, have obviously more than one table, but only only one or two of them may be erected for TV quality. And the staging lights and the TV lighting and all of the stuff that goes into making it viewable for TV, as opposed to the other tables which aren't shown on TV, um, a lot of those things that go on, like the extra lights, they generate so much more heat that that directly affects the performance of the table. It, it, it's actually unbelievable. You'd have to try it to fully experience it. If you're drawn to play on table six and the next day you're drawn to play on table one, it is like night and day. Yeah. The, 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 the only similarity is that the rules are the same. Everything else is different. Uh, and um, that's why you see, you know, if you get one of the marquee players at Home Nations event who always plays on table one, for obvious commercial reasons, they have a massive, massive advantage against a player who very rarely plays on table one, who's a bit like a fish out of water because the balls actually move around that table differently because of the heat. And as I say, you'd have to you'd have to know at it really to to, to see it, but it it is a, a massive, massive difference. With Fan Shengji being the the obvious complete um, <laughs> one that that proves the rule there because. He generally plays on the outside tables. The second he gets on the TV tables, he's unbeatable. He's like lightning, isn't he? So there you go. There's always one that's different anyway, Sean. So there you go, Niall. Hope that's answered your questions on tables. Amanda Davy on Facebook. Out of us both, who has the best taste in socks? Oh, come on. That doesn't even need asking. That's me. Right, moving on. Um, you all right, Sean? Yeah. Listen, I only wear black socks, so... There you go then. So I clearly have the best tasting socks. I have sock offs with Ken Doherty, for goodness sake. Of course I've got yeah. the best socks. Right. Peter Jones on Facebook. Where do snooker players get their nicknames? Do WST insist on them? And do players get a say? Right. I, I'll have a crack with this one. Um, most of them get made up by the likes of me, by, by MCs. I think Rob's come up with quite a few. Alan Hughes back in the day, I think he gave pretty much everyone a nickname. Um, world snooker do not insist on them no they absolutely don't I think for commercial reasons I think it wouldn't be a bad thing um, but no they don't do players get to say yes absolutely if I'm if I come up with a nickname for a player I would ask the player if they mind if they like it if they don't blah 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 so yeah players get to say where did you get yours from again Sean I think you've told this story before have you I, I, I was actually called something else in the early 2000s. And, and actually when I won the World Championship in 05, my nickname was the Whiston Warrior because at the time I lived in a village called Whiston. Uh, and, and, and that was it. I lived in a small village on the outskirts of Rotherham uh, called Whiston. Uh, I lived there for about two years uh, and uh, just coincided with that period of my life. So the Whiston Warrior... Uh, was was very quickly actually replaced by the magician, I think because I, I played a shot at the crucible and and, and as the I, I hit a ball and walked back to my chair. Meanwhile, the the ball went round the table and dropped in a pocket, and I think someone shouted out, "That's magic!" That. <laughs> and I, I I think it just stuck from there. Like I never heard Whiston Warrior again. I, I think it was literally someone shouted it out, and somebody thought, "Yeah, that's not too bad." Um, I think Alan Hughes started it. Mm. I think I think he he started it and again. Um, back to the, the snooker scene podcast that I listened to this morning on the way up to Belfast. 
they were telling some great stories worth a listen to guys you know it was it was, it was very very good about some of the early stories from alan hughes they were discussing again people who weren't you know they, on the tour but not players and alan hughes was one of our first mcs great character of a man you know brilliant brilliant character but they were saying how if he didn't know the player or if he didn't have a nickname for them he would introduce them as the very likable or the extremely <laughs> talented whoever you know that that takes so. me back to my shootout later. the shootout you've got 128 players to introduce okay normally on a, on a day at, at a tournament you'll introduce i don't know six maybe eight tops at the shootout you've got over two days 128 players to introduce so when I've done the shootout in the past, which I don't do anymore, someone, someone else does that now, but when I've done the shootout in the past, I would sit down with Ivan Hershevitz, who's um, I think he's head of head of media or, or whatever for World Snooker Tour, and we'd go through these introductions, and it's just one line because they've got to be quite short. And when you've got 128 players, bear in mind quite a lot of tour card holders don't play, so there's quite a lot of top-ups on there. Um, and I think we had, I think that, that there's always a lot of um, China's rising star which generally means he's a Chinese player that we don't actually know anything about. He's Chinese rising star. And the other one, I think the best one we ever had was um, Berry's number three, Ian Martin. <laughs> <laughs> which the best thing was, I went up to Ian Martin, right? Because Ian Martin's about six foot seven. He's a giant of a man, lovely guy, giant of a man. And I thought, I'm not going to upset him. So I said, Ian, how can I introduce you? And he said, well, I'm Berry's number three currently. And I was like, that'll do. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Burry's number three, Ian Martin. <laughs> right, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to put you on the spot. Go on, then. Which two players on the tour have the best nickname and the worst nickname? Oh, wow. Okay. Best nickname, as an MC, there, there can only be one, which is the Thunder from Down Under, because to, to announce the Thunder from Down Under, Neil Robertson, is that's an absolute joy. It rolls off the tongue. Always sounds good in the arena. I know Neil loves it when we go big on that because it, it makes the head in the back of his neck go up. So Thunder from Down Under, for me as an MC, is the best one. The worst. Do you know, I, I don't know. There's been some shockers over the years, hasn't there? Um, what was what did Scott Donaldson used to go by? Was it the, the Potting Prince of Perthshire or something like that, which I thought was pretty horrific. I mean, that was that's an absolute shocker, isn't it? Um, was that one of yours? No, it wasn't. No, certainly. Oh, come on, give me some credit. <laughs> give me some credit. No, it wasn't. Have I told the um, who came up with who came up with Ricky the Walnut uh, Walden? Have I told that story on here? No, you might have told it to me over a glass of wine. Oh, I yeah. Have I dropped another bombshell? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was Northern Ireland Open last year. Um. We were struggling for a... Ricky reached the quarterfinals, I think it was. And I, was I was struggling for a nickname for him because he's had several over the years. None of them really stuck. But the commentators often call him the Walnut. So I went to him and I said, I said Ricky, right, how about... Not to his face, they don't. I said, yeah. I said, how about the Walnut? And he, he said, yeah, but I don't really... I, I don't mind it, Phil. But I don't really get it. I don't really see... And I said, what if I give you some context? So I say, um, blah, 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 blah. He's a tough nut to crack... The Walnut, Ricky Walden, and Ricky looked at me. He's like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah, go on, I can go with that. That that makes that makes a little bit of sense, right?" And I've got to be really careful how I say this now. So I'm I'm in the arena introducing him, and I'm looking at, and Ricky stood there on the stage, and he's laughing, and I was like, "Blah blah blah blah." He's a tough nut to crack. The Walnut, Ricky Walden, and he walks out, and he's laughing, and he's grinning, and he's laughing, he's coming out. 
Anyway, mid-session info, he came into the media centre and he went, right, yeah, we, we, we need to knock the walnut on that. We can't do the walnut anymore. We can't. I said, why not? <laughs> right, and I need to be really careful here because of standards. Um, when, when gentlemen um, are smaller than average in certain departments, it's sometimes referred to as a walnut because it looks kind of similar. So Ricky said he was stood on the stage and he's, all he's thinking to himself is, good Lord. I hope they don't think I'm called that because of that reason. And he's laughing and he's choking away. And he goes, Phil, you can never call me the walnut again. We just can't do it. <laughs> so yeah, that, I'll hold my hands up. That was completely and utterly my fault. Okay. Never going to happen ever again. It springs to just, just, I know we're running out of time, but it, it just, it brings back a very funny memory. We were out there in Australia years ago for the Australian open and, um, We'd gone there. Now, I'm trying to remember the details of this story. The, 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 the general story is much funnier than the details. I try not to get bogged down in the details. But there was some story going around because we didn't have hotels in Bendigo for the Australian Open. They were like in motels. And there was three or four of them throughout Bendigo. And we all stayed in one of three or four. And I told the story in a previous episode about Irie and Williams's suitcase. Yes. Full of, this was on one of the same trips. And, and staying in this motel, and there might have been a few of them all sharing the referees and stuff, there was some story started doing the rounds that Olivier Martil couldn't boil an egg or, or didn't know how long it took to boil an egg. Or some, there was something about boiling an egg. The conversations you have on tour. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> so one of us, who's not that far away from this podcast went to one of the local shops and, and bought about a dozen egg timers. <laughs> Just the little ones, the little pocket-sized ones, we know the, with the sand running through. Yeah. You know, the little things. Perfect for boiling an egg. We went in his room. He, we didn't know. We went in, the, went in his room where his suit was hung up. And where he would normally have, you know, referees, they will have in their jacket. But when they put their dinner suit on, they look immaculate. They look like an extra from Casino Royale. But in their pockets are full of ball markers and refereeing equipment. You know, they've got spare gloves after spare gloves after ball markers, all sorts. Olivier Martil happened to be introduced this one particular day. They were testing new nicknames for the referees. And they introduced him as the Belgian Truffle. <laughs> and he went out into the arena. <laughs> and all he had in his pockets were exercises. <laughs> The Belgian truffle. The I can't Belgian wait to see Ollie now. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! Classic. Absolutely Absolute classic. classic. I can't wait I'd to see. He him. does now. He does now know how long it takes to boil an egg. The Belgian truffle. Right, that leads me on to a good question here from the Mariners Torquay, who are good friends of the podcast. They are, They've yes. written in and they are asking the question of you, Phil. Past or present, into a stadium. Who would who who would you have liked to have announced over the years in any sport in anything, past and present? Who who would you love to have done that you haven't managed to do? Wow, do you know this is really difficult. On my Facebook memories, I think from three or four years ago today, I got to introduce Ronnie O'Sullivan against Jimmy White at the Champion of Champions. That was a moment for me. Okay, as a snooker fan, I'd always wanted to announce Ronnie. I'd always wanted to announce Jimmy. Um, and that day I got to announce them against each other, which is a really rare beast, okay? Really, really rare they get to play each other on TV. Um, in boxing, obviously Muhammad Ali, but he 
before my time. Of my time, I would say the one was Lennox Lewis. And I've been very lucky. I've got to work with Lennox Lewis. I've interviewed him on a stage. I've worked with him in a boxing show. Absolute diamond of a guy. Um, So, yeah, announcing people. There isn't really anyone that, that I haven't been able to that I would love to have done. I guess in the wrestling, Big Daddy, because he's a legend. Um. I would love to interview John Elway, the American footballer. There's a lot of people I'd like to interview. There's a, there's a lot. I enjoy interviewing people, and, and there's a lot of people I'd like to. John Elway, I would love to interview and spend some time time talking to. Uh, Mike Tyson, I would love to interview Mike Tyson. I think he's um, an incredible guy. And although I know him a little bit, Tyson Fury, I'd, I'd love to interview him properly. I've interviewed him on the radio a few times, but it's always been about an upcoming fight or, or whatever. I'd love to sort of get a bit a bit deeper with him and... and talk through his life because he's, he's lived and um, I find people like that intriguing and very very interesting so from an announcing perspective there isn't really anyone I've been very very lucky that, that I've you know I've got to announce most of the people that I'd sort of dreamt of doing so really and um, you know I did the, the international between Australia and New Zealand in rugby league which is the biggest game in world rugby league um, you know I got to announce the, the legends that were on that pitch and Sean Johnston's, your Sonny Bill Williams and, and players like that, which was fantastic. So, yeah, do you know, I'm actually pretty happy. I'd like to do more interviewing, I think, in, in time. Um, love to do more of that, but that's what it is. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have been able to do what I have done. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I'd have told you you were puddled if you told me I'd get to do the things I've done. So, you know, it's it's been pretty amazing to me. So I actually look back at the people I have announced and interviewed. I've been very very lucky. So that's going to be our last listener question for this week. Um, all those people whose questions we haven't got in: uh, Andrea Lee Isaacs, uh, James M Shakes, Parada Darling on Twitter, Patrick H nineteen eighty four. We'll get them on the next podcast. I promise we will do. All we do, we clear off the questions we've already asked and we put those to the top of the list. So do that however our pointless question then sean to round things off has been sent in by a listener and it's due delicious on twitter once again she's asked one of these already and now she's asking another one and this is seriously leading is this okay the pointless this question is a good the pointless question this week if the police arrested you with no explanation what would your friends and family assume you had done sean well, obviously, my friends and family would assume there had been some form of mistake, Bill. <laughs> my friends and family would assume that it was drink-related, I should imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, uh, I've, I've racked my brains for this. I wouldn't have, me- I wouldn't have had many run-ins with the police, uh, I have to say. Um, but, I, but I am. In, 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 well, certainly in South Manchester, anyway, where I used to live, um, I, I, am, I am known... Uh, on the local pub scene, um, as being the undisputed mercy champion. <laughs> um, you know, not to be confused with any of those other great pub sports like arm wrestling, uh, traditional darts into an upturned tree. You know, all of these, all of these things. Mercy for those of you that don't know, you put your two two hands up, the other person, and you interlock fingers, and it's basically of who can bend each other's fingers back until one of you can't take it and the loser says mercy. Um, I am undefeated. Do you know, the, the, uh, that must be a Northwest thing. Living in Yorkshire my whole life, I've never, ever seen anyone playing that game in a pub. 
It's got to be said. Oh that no, is... you have to. It doesn't. You know, it's not like a seven o'clock thing. This this happens. This happens behind. You know, when the, when you're having a lock in. This this happens. You you you've got to be several drinks in for this game to start. So it's, you it's... have to be completely out. You know, out of it to even consider playing it. It's not a game for uh, people who aren't drunk. So for Sean, it is um, causing actual bodily harm via a game of mercy. Um, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't like this phrase, actual bodily harm, Your Honour. Honest, Your Honour, we were playing a game and I just broke all his fingers. Honest. Wow. Honest, Your Honour. And for me, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's got to be it's got to be alcohol-related, um, uh, which is terrible, isn't it, really? Let's be honest. It's absolutely, I'd love to say that it would be being a criminal master, mastermind behind a massive heist. Um, but it wouldn't be. It'd be something really petty, like falling asleep in a bush or something like that. Just gen- <laughs> general vagrancy, just general vagrancy whilst spanning somewhere. That's all it'd come down to. It's nothing that exciting, I'm afraid. Just something like that. So anyway, there you go. What what would you do? if? What would your friends and family think you'd been arrested for if you'd been arrested? The answers to that could be very, very dangerous, couldn't they, Sean? That's not a good one. That's one four seven pod. Do. I need to ring my sister now and get some alibis laid in, <laughs> just in case. I'd suggest you do. Right then, we always say what we're doing for the next two weeks. Well, coming to York is what you're doing. Very much looking forward to it. I've got another few days. Well, I've got another day tomorrow up here in Belfast, practicing with the pistol, Mark Allen, um, and then I've got a couple of days back in Dublin, just doing a, tying up a few loose ends. Before I get on the big bird and fly over uh, for the whole time in York. Um, Really excited about it. As I said earlier on, I'm over there with two hats on. Firstly, as a player, first and foremost, over there trying to win the tournament. But I will be over there working for the BBC as well. So listen, as you always say, Phil, if you're there in York, come and say hello. And it'd be great to meet as many of you as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I'm there next Tuesday. I'll be there on the 15th. Um, Are you still in York on the 21st? You will be. I will be. So until, we, well, certainly until a certain time anyway. Potentially could do the podcast actually face-to-face in the same room. That would be a rare beast, wouldn't it? That's when we're next due to record. That would be good. We shall see Why how not? it turns out. If you do see me and Sean in York um, out having a meal or one or two drinks, just come buy us drinks. That's all we ask. Just, just come and just come play us with wine. That's all we ask. That's it. Everyone that's listening hope you enjoyed it if you do subscribe like write review whatever share it out to your friends and family let people know about the podcast at 147 pod all over social media get involved ask us questions talk to us about podcasts what do you like what don't you like obviously do like me don't like sean i know it's quite a natural thing okay so at 147 pod all over social media enjoy the uk championships I know we both will. Sean, obviously, is going to go ahead and win it um, and moonwalk into the arena at the Barbican. Aren't you, Sean? Imagine. Imagine the scenes, Phil. Imagine the scenes. York would go off big time. It certainly would. Everyone, enjoy the UK Championships. We will see you again in two weeks' time. That was the 147 podcast with Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour. If you enjoyed what you've just listened to, make sure you subscribe, leave us a review, and interact with us across all forms of social media at 147pod. That's all words at 147pod. Thanks for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.